0: Well, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry early Christmas. Uh, I've got a question for you. Uh, do you know the origin of your given name? Your name, where, where did it come from? And, and is, it a, is it an interesting story? Is it an epic story? I'll tell you, I got the name Barry and in a very epic way. And here's how it happened my parents liked the name Barry. That's the story. (laughs) That's the whole story. Uh, There they are, sitting right back there, guys. Uh, I'm Barry, forever, because they they liked the name. They had a friend named Barry, and they... I guess we're in a bit of a Barry Manilow phase at the time, so here I am for the rest of my life, Barry uh, Rodriguez. So, uh, we in the U.S., we don't generally have uh, as profound naming conventions for our, naming our children as as other places in the world. We just pick names that we like. Uh, but I've been to a bunch of places around the world where people are named uh, for, for all kinds of cool things. Like uh, I've been to places where people are named because of the circumstances of their birth. Their name somehow speaks to how they were born. Uh, in in Kenya, there is uh, this concept of naming your child with sort of a prophetic idea of who, who do I dream my child to become. And so one of of my friends, uh, Pastor, Pastor Fred, he, uh, he named his children Fortune and Favor, because he wanted his children to grow up and experience God's fortune and God's favor. It's beautiful. Uh, Thanos was just telling me that his grandfather was was named Deathless in, in Greek, and that's where you got your name. I mean, like, that's awesome, and I'm Barry. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> just kidding. I love my name. It was really rough in kindergarten, but it's fine now. I'm, I'm totally uh, good with it. So, in scripture, what we see is that, just like in other countries in the world, there were significant uh, thought given to the names that were given to children. Uh, I mean, you see in the Bible, uh, and in the ancient world all over the place, you see names like uh, the arrow, or, or uh, beloved one, or God is my judge. Could you imagine being named God is my judge like in every conversation you have? Like you just drop the mic at the end of every conversation because you are God is my judge. Anyway you see that in in scripture names carry weight they carry weight but they carry weight beyond in in scripture beyond just the the literal meaning of the specific name because in the ancient world your name was a way of describing who you were what what you represented your name was a part of your identity was a part of your character was a part of your your uh, reputation and a part of your authority like, if, if we were to say, you know, I come in the name of the king, that doesn't just mean, hey, I work for King George. and the, No, what it means is, like, I have the authority of the king behind me when I speak, right? That's, that's what we think of when we, when we look at names in Scripture. Now, I bring this all up because uh, the concept of names carrying weight will be important as we look at many names of Jesus this December. That's what this series is all about, no other name. We are looking at, at the different names that, we are, that, that are given to our Savior, the one who was born on Christmas morning. Jesus has a whole bunch of names, Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, the Lamb of God, on and on, right? There's a lot of names of Jesus. And so we're gonna look at those this, this uh, December because they are gonna help us understand the character, the identity, and the authority of our Savior. The series is going to be a little different than normal because uh, instead of just one of us getting up here and and preaching a full message, it's actually going to be several of us giving little mini messages that are going to hopefully give us little uh, things to chew on, little ideas that are going to help us understand Jesus better. Now, the series is called No Other Name, which is probably a bit confusing because you're like, wait, no other name, but we're sitting here talking about a whole bunch of other names, so what's that about? Let me explain. Let me explain. We get the title for this series from the book of Acts. In uh, Acts chapter 4, there's a moment where uh, the apostle Peter and the apostle John perform a, a healing. They miraculously heal somebody, and the religious leaders are like, what gives? Like, how did you do this? What's going on? And here's what Peter says in response. He says, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised the, from the dead. There is salvation in no one else. No one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So Peter is saying, look, this man was healed by the name of of Jesus the powerful name of Jesus. What he's not meaning here is that the name of Jesus was like a code word or some kind of magic spell that would automatically bring about healing. It wasn't the the utterance of the name Jesus that healed this man. No, it was just like we just talked about, it was the person of Jesus and his name represents his personhood. It represents his authority. That is what allows Peter to say that there is no—there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name. There is no other person under heaven by which we must be saved. So that's why we call this no other name. No other name, because it's the person of Jesus that these names represent who actually brings salvation. So today, what I want to do is I want to kick us off by talking about a pretty obvious name of Jesus to think about, which is Jesus. Why was he given the name Jesus? Why was that his given name? That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, that's where we're going to look at it, uh, but it's going to be page, I think, 799 in the House Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Father God, thank you for bringing your salvation through Jesus. Every uh, every December, every Christmas, we focus on the fact that you entered into our story and that your son, Jesus, brought healing and salvation and hope to this dark world. So thank you for that, Father. And now as we explore the, the names of Jesus and understand his identity, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just breathe and move and enliven our hearts. I pray that in these moments, me and the other speakers, that we would just disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain as we listen to what you would have us hear this morning. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, Matthew. Matthew is the first uh, gospel, the first book in our New Testament that talks about Jesus, and he kind of spells that out, Matthew, at the very, very beginning in verse 1. He says this. He says, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah— a descendant of David and of Abraham. So he's essentially saying, look, this is the origin story of Jesus. Now I want you to file something away for a moment because if you look at what we just read, there are actually, Matthew already starts out with four names for Jesus, right? He says Jesus, but he also says the Messiah. He also says uh, in the Greek, son of Abraham and son of David, all right? So verse one of Matthew, Jesus already has four names, File that away, we'll come back to that. Uh, he goes on, he gives this sort of, uh, this genealogy of Jesus's uh, parents and, and his, his family. And then we get the story of Joseph and Mary, and Joseph was a good godly Jewish man, and Mary was, was, became, became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit, and so Joseph didn't know what was going on. He thought maybe Mary was sleeping around, and so he was going to uh, break off the engagement quietly. Uh, but then an angel shows up and tells Joseph uh, that there's something else going on here. Look at verse 20. It says uh, an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream and said joseph son of david the angel said do not be afraid to take mary as your wife for the child within her was conceived by the holy spirit and she will have a son and you are to name him jesus for he will save his people from their sins all of this occurred to fulfill the lord's message through his prophet look the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. All right, so file that one away, because there's another name of Jesus already in Matthew, Emmanuel. Again, we'll come back to that. Okay, so the angel tells Joseph, look, you are going to have a son, and you are going to give him the name Jesus. Jesus. Why? What's so significant about the name Jesus? Well, in Hebrew, uh, this name Jesus is actually Yehoshua, Yehoshua, which means Yahweh saves." And Yahweh, again, is the name of of God. That's what God introduces himself as. It just literally means "I am." I am, that's my name, uh, Yahweh saves. That's what Yehoshua means. Now, Yehoshua, normally, when we translate that from the Hebrew into English, we translate it as the name Joshua. Joshua. So here's your little fun fact for the day. Jesus' name is actually Joshua. So if you ever bump into Jesus at a party and he's like, hey, I'm Josh, like, don't be confused. His name's actually Joshua. So that's a little weird. That's interesting. Yahweh saves Yahushua. Why do we call him Jesus? Glad you asked. In the Greek, all right, here we go. Sorry, I just have to be nerdy for a second. Uh, in the Greek, uh, the Greek translation of Yahushua is Jesus. Jesus which was brought into the Latin as Jesus but then when they made the King James version of the Bible they had to figure out how to how to spell Jesus in English and there was some confusion based on German pronunciation of the letter i and so they named him Jesus with a j and that's why we call him Jesus and not Joshua you're welcome again so many fun things to share at parties you guys are just going to be like the bell of the ball when you guys go to christmas parties this year okay So that's why we call him Jesus. So this name, uh, Yehoshua, something else you may not be aware of is that it was actually a very common name. In the first century, I mean, there were Jesuses everywhere, Joshua's everywhere. Very common name. There's like four different Jesuses in the New Testament. So this is a very, very common name. It's like today naming someone John or Sarah. Like there's a lot of them, right? There's a lot of people with that name. So it's interesting because this name, the angel gives it so much significance. The angel says, Look, uh, th- he will save his people from their sins. That's why you're to name him Yahweh Saves, Yehoshua. Except if that name is so common, then, then why would that be the name that's given to Jesus? Well, here is when all those other names start to come into focus. Because by itself, again, Yehoshua, Yahweh Saves, that's just a common name. Any good Jewish boy could be named. Yahweh saves, and it would have made total sense, but Matthew already is making us aware of the fact that this identity, this, this character of Jesus, is so much more uh, deep than just the name Jesus. He's already given us four other names to think about, and what I've come to understand is that these other names help us understand how Yahweh saves. They help us understand why this name actually means what it means. For example, back in verse 1, Matthew refers to Jesus as... well, what does he say? He says, uh, Jesus the Messiah. He says he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Son of Abraham, that is uh, a way of referring to the fact that he is an Israelite. And what that means to me is Yahweh saves by fulfilling his promise. Because from the very beginning, right, God has has promised to, to heal the world, to bring blessing to the nations through Abraham's descendants. And so through Jesus, Yahweh saves, he is going to do exactly what he promised. Uh, Matthew refers to Jesus as the Messiah, Christ. Uh, That word, the anointed one, it's a way of indicating that Yahweh will save through the chosen leader that the people have been longing to see. The people for generations have been longing for, and here he is, Yahweh saves. Now uh, He refers to him as the son of David. This is a reference to King David in the Old Testament, and it's, it's a reminder that Yahweh saves by establishing the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is doing. He's establishing a kingdom of justice and grace and mercy and life and peace. That is who he is. And then there's that last name, Emmanuel. Pastor Marin's gonna talk more about that in a little bit, but Emmanuel means God with us. So now we get the idea that Yahweh saves. How does he save? He saves by entering into the story himself. God enters among us, walks among us. That's what Jesus is. So again, by itself, the given name of Jesus may not be particularly uh, It might not give us a whole lot of information, but when you start to see all these other names added on, it begins to help us understand how powerful this name truly can be. It's like a seed crystal. Jesus is a seed crystal, or like the center of a snowflake that everything else is built upon. Yes, Yahweh saves, but it is only through one person, one name, that we can truly experience that salvation. That's why the apostle Peter can say so confidently, there is salvation in no one else. There's salvation in no one else. There is only one name, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Yes, there were lots of Joshua's, there were lots of Jesus's walking around, but there was only one man who showed us what it really means for Yahweh to save. His name is Jesus, and there is no other name.
1: So it might surprise you uh, to know that I am not a big fan of Black Friday shopping. I'm just not. Um, you can get deals all month long. But anyway, last Friday I decided I was going to do it anyway. So I took my three daughters and we went to the fashion mall and it was exactly as I expected. I mean, just the parking lot itself was, I, was filling me with terror. Like people were honking at each other. Everyone was going down the wrong aisle. Some guy like jerked around like two other cars, almost caused a pileup. It was terrible. So I think, why am I not shopping from my couch? Like, let's just do some online shopping. And yet, that solicits some anxiety in me as well. Like, I know I don't have to get dressed. I can be in my pajamas. I don't have to put on makeup. But then I think, okay, I'm buying too much. And is it even gonna fit? And I might have to take it back and go to the mall anyway. And is, am I getting enough for Christmas? Like, am, do I have equal for Will as I do for Maggie? And there's piles of things in my closet that I'm trying to hide. And the biggest thing is, will Jeff be home when these are delivered on my front po- porch? Spoiler alert, Jeff is always home when these are delivered on my front porch. But this causes lots of anxiety in my life probably in yours as well. And we see these commercials around this time of year, you know, with the BMW wrapped in a ribbon and it all seems so serene and everybody's so happy and I've got a new car and it's great. And yet that's not really how it plays out. And this is just a small portion of the season that we're in right now. Peace, that word seems almost elusive in the world that we live in today. Globally, there is so much unrest in Ukraine, and Venezuela, and uh, and, and Haiti, just to name a few. There's civil unrest, and attacks, and battles, and injustice, and here in the United States, everyone's mad at everyone else about everything and anything. And we see it play out day after day on social media. So there's cultural and societal unrest, There's family unrest. I've talked to several of you about Thanksgiving, and it wasn't good. It was hard, and there was arguments and tension. So there's unrest in our families, and and there's unrest in our souls. So many of us are riddled with with anxiety and fear and and depression and and anger. Yeah, peace. (laughs) Seems like a, an unattainable idea, a, a lofty goal, an unachievable dream. And yet that's what this whole season is about. The reason for the gifts and the decorations and the festivities all is celebrating Jesus who Isaiah prophesied would be the Prince of Peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, where we find this phrase, Isaiah is speaking to the people in the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. He is speaking into a situation where Judah feels powerless, and they're afraid of the the rulers to their north. Was God for them, or had he completely abandoned them? Part of the prophetic words that Isaiah is speaking to them is about a child who would represent God's presence and embody God's characteristics and it is in one of these prophecies that we find the phrase, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 6, for for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Two of the titles that this, this child that Isaiah is talking about will bear are Wonderful Counselor and Prince of Peace. And they could apply to a mortal human. And in a time when Judah desperately needed wisdom and peace, these would have been traits they greatly desired and needed in a leader. These are aspects of his character of God's character, they describe who he is, who Jesus is, and what he has come to do. And don't we, so many years later, need these exact same things? Wisdom, counsel, and peace. But what does this mean that Jesus is the prince of peace? Well, he is a prince, he is the king's son, the son of God. He is exalted to be prince and savior. He is the prince of the kings of the earth. In Acts five thirty-one, Peter and the apostles say this, then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. He is a prince. But what about this peace part? He is prophesied to be the prince of peace. And when Jesus' birth was announced to the shepherds by the angels, they reiterated this peace when they said in Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. So where do I find this peace? The peace of Jesus is offered to all people on the earth. This peace was not enforced by power and might. It came through humility and service. This peace doesn't depend on conquests, but rests on sacrifice. This peace isn't just the absence of something undesirable, but the presence of something desired. The birth of Jesus was ushering in a new kingdom and a new peace. This peace has its roots in the Jewish idea of shalom, which means wholeness. Wholeness. To be whole or at peace, to be complete, means that you have right relationship with God, right relationship with others, and right relationship with yourself. Jesus as the Prince of Peace offers all of this to all of us. And it starts with the right relationship with God. Peace, shalom, is often used in reference to an appearance of calm and tranquility of individuals, groups, and nations. But the deeper, more foundational meaning of peace is the spiritual harmony brought about by an individual's restoration with God. Jesus's birth and ultimately the sacrifice in his death makes it so that we, humankind, are no longer enemies of God. In Romans 5, 8, it says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Christ's birth and ultimately death is the fulfillment of the prophecy. He came to live in human form and then die a criminal's death so that we could be made right and have peace with God. Romans 5-1, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. We are no longer enemies of God. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. We have right relationship with God because of the Prince of Peace. We have eternal peace. Romans 5.10, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. This is the deep abiding peace between our hearts and our creator that cannot be taken away. And it's the ultimate fulfillment of Christ's work as prince of peace. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus left us the Holy Spirit that once we surrender to him and acknowledge that he is God and gave his life so that we could be right with God, he gives us the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And that Holy Spirit is our helper. The one who who we are aware and alert to and listen to and obey will guide us. When we allow that to happen then our lives will overflow with the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. When we abide in the Spirit, our lives will display that in all ways, including with our relationships with other people, right relationships, peace with others. When our relationship is made right with God and we experience love, joy, and peace that can only come from Him and can only be found in Him. It spills over into our relationships with other people and it brings peace to our souls. Right relationship and peace with ourselves. In Philippians 4, 7 it says this, don't worry about anything Don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then, then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. And let me just say this, this doesn't mean it's gonna be easy that everything's just gonna be taken care of. He never promised that. It doesn't mean that life isn't hard sometimes, that there's no fighting or anxiety or pain or hurt or chaos, but if you live in Jesus, Yahweh, being led by the Holy Spirit, taking all that is swirling around you to Him in prayer, practicing gratitude for all He is and all He has done, you can experience the Prince of Peace. Peace in your heart, your mind, and your soul is possible. The pandemonium may spin around you, but it is possible for you to be a pillar of peace in the midst of it. Can you picture that for a minute? all that you feel is swirling around you, whether it be your own personal anxiety or angst in relationships or what's happening around the world, can you picture yourself in the middle of that with the Prince of Peace right there with you? And you can stand firm in that and live in that peace because you are connected so deeply with him. This Prince of Peace is available to you peace is attainable it is achievable it can be a reality for you but only if you know the prince and you connect with him in a deep way can you this christmas this this season find that time find that space Ways you can connect with Jesus. Space to bask in his presence, to abide in him, to find rest in him for your weary soul. I put a lot of verses in the app if, you, if you're following the app and I'm gonna actually post them later on social media. Verses about who, who God is and how you can find that peace that you can meditate on this season. And all the time. He is the Prince of Peace. And he can be the Prince of Peace for you and to you and in you, but you have to connect with him. You have to surrender to him in order to have that peace. There is no peace. There is no true peace outside of relationship with Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And once you have that relationship, the fruits of the Spirit, including peace, will pour out of you, will flow out of you in powerful and profound ways to the world around you. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and he and that peace that surpasses all understanding is available to you right here and right now.
0: Emmanuel
2: is a name that is deeply personal to me. When I say it, it's like a one-word prayer. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. My heart and my mind know what that name means, and so I pray it all the time. Emmanuel. That name brings so much comfort to my soul. And so I was surprised to learn That that name that brings so much comfort, to me, wasn't used in such a comforting way at all. Not initially. Not quite. To understand the name Emmanuel, we have to start in Isaiah chapter 7. The prophet Isaiah is commanded by God to bring a message of judgment and, and hope to King Ahaz, the king of Judah. Judgment and hope. At this time, the nation of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, into Israel to the north and Judah to the south. These two kingdoms were at war with one another. King Ahaz, king of Judah to the south, was freaking out because he'd just gotten word that his adversary Israel had joined forces with his adversary Syria, and they were coming for him. Isaiah 7:2, Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear like trees shaking in a storm. So God tells Isaiah to deliver a reassuring message to King Ahaz. He tells him to stop worrying. Stop worrying. He says he doesn't have to fear this invasion. This invasion will never happen, he says through his prophet. It will never take place. But King Ahaz couldn't hear that. He was too afraid. He was terrified. He didn't receive this hopeful prophecy as any kind of comfort or with any confidence at all. His two biggest enemies had just joined forces against him. He was fearful and skeptical. But the prophet Isaiah said to him in verse 9, unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. Another translation puts it this way. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So watch what happens in the very next verse of this chapter. In verse 10 of chapter 7, it says, Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused no, he said, I, I won't test the Lord like that. Then, Israel, <laughs> then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He's, he's hostile here. He's angry. And that's surprising coming from a a, a passage that we use so often at Christmas time. I wasn't expecting that. Isaiah is worked up. Listen well, he says. Must you exhaust the patience of my God? He's angry. And it only gets worse from here. He goes on to say those two kingdoms that you feared so much, Israel and Syria, they're not the problem. I told you, that they were not a threat to you. But now the Lord is going to bring judgment upon you unlike anything you have seen in your lifetime. He's bringing the king of Assyria down on you. Big, bad, brutal, notorious Assyria. And why would God do all of this? I read this passage in Isaiah chapter 7 a few times over and initially I couldn't understand why God would punish Ahaz for refusing to test the Lord. To me, that seemed like a good thing. I will not. I will not test the Lord my God that way. It seemed almost noble. What was so terrible about that? The answer is found in 2 Kings chapter 16, and we don't have time to turn there today, but if you read it, it basically says, Ahaz, king of Judah, did not do what was pleasing in the sight of God. In his fear, his fear of being attacked by his enemies, he had made an alliance an unholy alliance with, of all things, the kingdom of Assyria, the wicked kingdom, big, bad, brutal, and notorious Assyria. To him, this was a logical, strategic move. He's thinking to himself, if Israel allied with Syria, then I'm gonna ally ally myself with a bigger, badder nation to, to protect myself. The problem is, God had already told him the plan. He told him to trust, trust God for his deliverance, trust God for protection. But instead of trusting, what did Ahaz do? He took silver and gold from the temple of the Lord as payment. He sent this to the wicked king of Assyria. He robbed God, he robbed God to pay for his own foolish and futile alliance, thinking that this was going to be the thing that protected him. He trusted in his own plan. He trusted in his own wit and his own scheme. When we understand this, the story takes on a whole new meaning. When Ahaz said, "I, I will not test the Lord like that, he wasn't being sincere. He was lying. He was attempting to appear righteous, but he knew that he had already disobeyed God by making an alliance with the enemy. And God knew it too. And so he sent his messenger, the prophet Isaiah. Listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's Yahweh who saves. God is with us. He's saying, I told you that God would fight your battles. I told you that God would protect you. I told you that there was nothing to fear. I told you that God was with you, but you didn't listen. Instead, you listened to your own fear and you trusted your own scheme. So now I'll just show you a different way that God is with us. A virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel. God is with us. Yahweh is the one who saves. So, why do we talk about this name, Emmanuel, at Christmas time? The name that's only mentioned three times in the entire Bible. We do it because it's central to the Christmas story. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 1. We're going back to Matthew 1. We were there earlier this morning. Page 799 in the House Bible. And starting down at verse 18 is where we get Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. And Matthew makes the connection back to that passage in Isaiah chapter 7 about the virgin bearing a son. He tells the story of Mary and Joseph, particularly the story of Joseph. Finding out that his fiance was pregnant. And trying to figure out how he could back out of the engagement without shaming mary and in that time joseph has a dream and in the dream an angel tells him don't be afraid don't be afraid to take mary as your wife and then we read in verse 22 all of this occurred to fulfill the lord's message through his prophet look the virgin will conceive a child She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The messenger of God, the angel, brought Joseph the good news. He's finally here. God is with us. Emmanuel has come. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. My one word prayer, Emmanuel. I know why this name resonates so deeply with me. Ask anyone who knows me, church. I am a person who is riddled with fears. Rational fears, irrational fears, debilitating fears. I am not proud of this. I don't like this about myself. I I wish I wasn't this way. But I struggle on a daily basis with some level of fear and anxiety. That's why I pray the name Emmanuel, Emmanuel, so continuously. I need to do it daily and sometimes hourly to remind my soul that God is with me. Sometimes I walk this room when no one's here and I just pray, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, walk with me. I know you're with me. A few years ago, Tim gave a message on this name, Emmanuel, and he taught that Emmanuel comes from im, meaning with and El, which is a shortened version of Elohim. Elohim is another name for God, and it means the mighty one. So Emmanuel, God with us, said another way, is Emmanuel, the mighty one, is with us. And suddenly it all makes sense. King Ahaz's fear, his trust in his own feudal devices, a misplaced trust that led to his own destruction, his refusal to believe that the mighty one was actually with him, choosing fear over faith. And Joseph, Joseph was afraid too, but unlike Ahaz, Joseph to- chose to abandon his fear and to lean in to the promise of Emmanuel, God with him. He chose to trust when the angel told him not to fear. Joseph's trust, Ahaz's distrust, Ahaz's fear, which spiraled and descended into foolishness and futility and destruction, and Joseph's fear, which transcended into faith. Each of them receiving the promise that God would be with them if only they would accept the invitation to trust. So where does that leave us? Where does it leave me? I have a lot of fears. My plans are futile. (laughs) I have an open invitation to trust his plans and not my own. I have an open invitation this morning to allow my fear to transcend into faith. To trust that God, the mighty one, is with me. When I pray, Emmanuel, this is what I'm praying. I am accepting God's invitation to trust. I know you're with me. Emmanuel, you're with me. God, with us. And So I have three questions for you all this morning. Where are you being invited to trust that the mighty one is with you? Where are you being invited to trust that the mighty one is with you this season? Where are you being invited to trust him and allow your fear to transcend into faith? Where do you need to be reminded that he is your Emmanuel? He is God Almighty, the mighty one with you. Jesus, our Emmanuel, said this, He said, be sure of this, be sure of it. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your faith, be sure and know that he is Emmanuel, he is God with you. Lord, you are God with us, you are our Emmanuel. You are our prince of peace. You are Yahweh. You are Elohim. Lord, would you just teach us throughout this month who you are, reveal yourself to us and your truth to us through your name. The names that are ascribed to you in our holy scriptures, would you deepen our understanding this month of who you are. And even now, Lord, as we sit in your presence together here in this room or as we're watching online, you are everywhere at once. You are omnipresent. Speak to us, Lord, our Emmanuel, our God with us wherever we are. With us, I pray in the name of Jesus, my Prince of Peace, my Emmanuel. Amen.